0: on this episode of this week in linux there's a lot of interesting beta software news from linux mint mx linux magia and valve announced that the steam link is coming to the raspberry pi we'll also check out some new releases from ubiport's ubuntu touch wordpress and more later in the show microsoft throws in the towel on their edge browser nvidia open sources their physics engine and a lot of cool stuff in the linux gaming section then we'll take a look at some security news from kubernetes Cora, and some unfortunate legal news regarding encryption from Australia. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux GNUs. In case you missed the announcement last week, we're currently running a holiday sale for the Linux's Everywhere merch for the shirt, the hoodie, etc. For a 20% off coupon is the Miss coupon, L-I-N-U-X-M-A-S. And you can use it by going to TuxDigital.com slash LinuxIsEverywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to TuxDigital.com slash LinuxIsEverywhereEU for shipping inside of Europe. And remember when you check out to use the coupon code for, to save 20% off with the code LinuxMiss L-I-N-U-X-M-A-S. Our first in the show this week is Ubuntu Touch Over the Air 6, or OTA 6. It's actually rolling out for nine supported devices, including the Fairphone 2, the Nexus 5, the OnePlus 1, and many more. It's more of an incremental update from the OTA 5 release that was about two months ago. So it's not like a huge, massive release, but they have done a lot of things for the their new Morph web browser. It's received some updates for restoring the previous browser session, which is always nice. Uh, it supports web apps. Uh, the access locally stored content, which improves a lot of functionality. And it also now supports reCAPTCHA and uh, has a new themable scroll bars and all kinds of different uh, improvements to the tab browsing experiments as well. So overall that's great because the Morph Browser is much better than the previous one and it's really nice to see that they're making more, more improvements. I mean, There's also some specific hardware improvements for the OnePlus One the like better calling features and things like that. And they've also done uh, some integration up, uh, improvements for the Nextcloud system. Or the next cloud integration system. Anyway, so it this update is actually re- recommended by all or for all users from the UBport team. So if you are using UBports, or if you're just curious about UBports, because I think uh, Ubuntu Touch from UBports is probably the closest to function functionally, like ready to go production ready. Like it's not production ready, but it's super close, and it's probably the closest of all the other options. So if you are interested and you have a, a, a supported device, you should definitely check it out because I think it's worth trying. Uh, if you don't have one, you could go find like a Nexus 5 on Craigslist or eBay and things like that for fairly cheap because they are pretty old phones and those are probably one of the better options for testing the Ubuntu Touch from UbiPorts. So, but if you'd like to learn more about this particular release, you can find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show, Zubuntu has announced that they're ending the 32-bit ISOs starting with Zubuntu 19.04. Uh, Zubuntu has announced that they're not going to, do, to support 32-bit uh, because it's just too much of a burden on their team because they're not a big enough team to maintain all this the infrastructure to create these ISOs. So, but they did have a vote to decide whether or not to do it, and they had a 6 of 10 voted to uh, basically stop making the 32-bit. Uh, the The actual 4 of the 10 that that didn't vote for ending it actually didn't vote at all. So a lot of people were kind of confused that it was 6 versus 4, but it was actually 6 versus, well, no one, because the other 4 didn't vote. But if you wanted to use the uh, 32-bit, you can still do that with the Zubuntu 18.04 LTS, so that is still available if you do have 30-bit hardware. Um, but at this point, it means that Lubuntu is the only flavor left of Ubuntu that st- was still going to support the 32-bit, because Ubuntu Studio is essentially like fairly closely connected to this Ubuntu, so that means they're not going to do it. But with the actually, Ubuntu Studio kind of... I'm, I'm pretty sure they removed it on the last version anyway, like the the 1810. They got rid of it then, too. So... Basically, it means Lubuntu is the last one that currently has 32-bit. I'm not really sure if they're going to continue it or not. We'll see about that. Uh, But I think it's uh, fair to say that if you are using 32-bit hardware, which is, by the way, super old. If you're using super old hardware, you probably don't care that much about, you know, latest upgrades and latest updates and things like that. So, the system of an 1804 would probably work anyway. So... Just a thought. Uh, Otherwise, there's there's a lot of different distros that still support 32-bit, including MX Linux. uh, We were going to talk about later on in the the show, so uh, feel free to check out the show notes for this post from the mailing list for Zubuntu, and also we'll have a link in the show notes for MX Linux uh, that will also, and I think pretty sure uh, some more stuff we're going to talk about has 32-bit support as well. But anyway, if you'd like to learn more, you can find a link in the show notes next in the show is Linux Mint 19.1 beta. This is actually one of the first uh, betas things we're going to talk about, which is quite a few betas, uh, multiple distros, as well as another interesting beta thing from Valve. So let's just get started. Linux Mint 19.1, or Tessa, as they released their beta for testing. This is the first point release of the 19.x series that is based on the Ubuntu 18.04 LTS Bionic Beaver with this one there's a lot of updates including a new design but first we're going to talk about the uh, fundamental like the functional stuff that's update that's new in this one and that is first uh, nemo has a lot of uh, improvements for the performance they've said that it's thanks to some code optimizations that's three times faster and they've also said that they're adding the ability for the to to toggle thumbnails on and off per directory which is pretty nice so you can they used to be where you had to if you wanted thumbnails it would apply to every directory and now it can apply to just ones that you, spe- you specify so that's cool. They've also made some updates to the, uh, the update manager and making it easier to remove unused kernels and to check for the Linux kernel support status so that's pretty cool. Uh, I, there's, I like the updates for the the newest version of the update manager because of the support for the different kernels. They're actually turning everything back on. They did that for the last for the for the first nineteen series, so I'm glad to see they're making it more impro- improvements for that feature. Uh, they've also made some updates to the X apps, which are the apps that are forks from previous known applications. So, like for example, their editor is called Xed, and it's a fork of the older version of Gedit. And the same thing for X Reader, which is a fork of Events, and it's—I'm pretty sure it's a fork of Events—and that's for PDFs and things like that. So they made a lot of updates for those. Now let's get to the the really most obvious update, and definitely the—I think the best as far as like the design-wise that they've pretty much ever done. Cinnamon has always been like this weird. To me, it's been this weird uh, design of like the the panel system. And the windows and the menus and things like that, they 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 looked off because they'd have this really bright uh, uh, like kind of like a brush Chrome effect on their windows, but then they have this nice uh, gradient dark effect on their panel. So they still have that combination of light and dark, which is fine because uh, that's actually really nice to, you know there's a there's a benefit to that having the the bright windows to for easier reading and the, the dark panel for uh, just so it's not you know ab- abrupt in like in your way kind of thing but they've made a lot of changes so like the the style has been uh, modified to instead of having the old traditional style which kind of looked a little dated uh, they did have it for a very long time this version has a more modern design with a kind of like a flat approach so like a flat design approach they have uh, updated it so that the window list applets are now grouping windows by default. So like if you have multiple uh, file managers open, file manager windows, it will group it as one icon and then have like a, a number associated to it saying n- number two or how many, how many managers or windows you have open. The thing is interesting is that, like this is a new design and it, I do like it in the sense of like their approach, but it does, it does kind of feel like Windows 10-ish. Um, I think that's kind of the point really. Uh, but if you, if you like that kind of thing, I think this is a good option for that. And it might be more enticing for people to try out Mint because if they're Windows users, it does look fairly similar. So, you know, that's nice uh, for those people in me. And uh, if you still like the old layout, don't, you don't have to worry. It's not gone. They have an a option where you can toggle it back to using the old version if you liked it with the Mint Welcome Utility and there's a bunch of other things that are coming with this, with this release uh, the, the other, uh, speaking of the mint, the mint welcome utility there's also a new feature to have like a, a, during the step of the, the install of the welcome section there's a new configuration step for the firewall so that could be beneficial to some people. Um, overall I think this is, uh, has a lot of potential and if you are a mint fan you definitely should check it out especially since the upgrade from 19.0 to 19.1 uh, will work because it is not a rebasing of the core Usually, if you have a Linux Mint has this uh, issue where the 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 inter of releases of the every six months, those don't have any update problems. They don't have upgrade problems because they're they're using the same core. They're just having like nicer things on top being fixed. But as the like the from eighteen to nineteen, there will be a problem or was a problem, and 19 to 20 there will be a problem as well because of the like all the differences between Ubuntu and Mint as far as the core goes. Uh, there's not really a, a clean upgrade path between the big uh, LTS switches. Between the 19.0 and the 19.1 and 2 and 3, those point releases have, you know, they're just fine for upgrades. So feel free to try that out. And if you'd like to learn more, you can find a link in the show notes. Up next in the beta section, Uh, MX Linux 18 Beta 1 has been released for testing, of course, since it's a beta. If you're not aware, beta means that it's not really ready for production, not ready for every user. It's just for people who are willing to test things that might have breaks and bugs and things like that. So uh, I didn't say that for the Mint, but that's also a beta. So the same thing applies to this one, uh, to Mint and MX Linux, and the next topic as well. So up uh, up on the, uh, the news updates for... MX Linux is that they've updated the firmware, they've updated the kernel to 4.19.5, they've updated Mesa to 18.2.6, and they've updated a lot of applications like Firefox, VLC, GIMP, LibreOffice, and things like that. Uh, But there's a lot of cool things that they're, like the MX tools that they make, are really cool. So uh, first they've actually updated the system keyboard and system locale options to allow easy access to Uh, configure your system default keyboard and like uh, the language it uses on the system but they've also done some really cool things with the MX package installer making it having faster performance uh, adding flat pack support I mean they've had flat pack support for a little while but this is like uh, a big improvements to the support for the flat packs Uh, and they've also uh, added some popular app entries so like it's a it's like a category where you can like uh, look for the like it's like a, it's not really curated curated but kind of is, uh, so you can go there to find out like the most popular apps uh, that they they're offering you to download from. Uh, they've also done some cool things with the the MX installer, which is like the system installer, and it now supports the having an encrypted root, home, and swap partitions with the Lux encryption. I'm not sure if it's Lux or Luke's. I never looked that up. I'm going to go with Lux, because that just sounds fun. But anyway, uh, the next thing, they also have updates to the MX Codex to install the uh, updated S3 texture packs, which is pretty important for the Steam games and things like that. So if you want to use uh, Steam in your MX Linux install, uh, you should probably check those out. There are some known issues with the uh, this release. So if you are an NVIDIA user, the NVIDIA drivers in the main repo may not build against the new kernel yet. So the new drivers uh, will be moved to the main the main repo when it gets closer to the release of the full version. So like the MX-18 final release will have you know the NVIDIA stuff ready. So if you're using NVIDIA and you want to use proprietary drivers, that might not work. Uh, if you wanted to use the open source drivers, those are probably okay. Um, but can't really guarantee that either. But probably. Uh, so just keep that in mind. If you do want to try it out and you are an NVIDIA user, uh, what's really cool about MX Linux as well, because of their, in their MX apps or the MX course tools that they have, those tools are, um, constantly being updated. It's kind of like they're rolling release at the same time, but they're not as you know, the system itself is not as rolling release because it's based on Debian stretch, but the apps are kind of a rolling release. So if they when they make big changes to their like their their package installer and things like that, even if you're running an older version of MX Linux, you'll still get those updates. So that's a very cool approach. I like that. If you'd like to learn more about MX Linux or get a link to the download the testing for the beta, you know keep in mind it is a beta. Uh, you can find a link in the show notes for MX Linux 18 Beta 1. Up next in the show is Magia 7 Beta 1, another beta. Like I said. And uh, this one has a lot of updates to their core functionality. So the kernel is now being updated to 4.19.6. The Plasma uh, version that they have is going to be updated to 5.14.2, which I'm fairly sure is the latest version or pretty close to that. Uh, The GNOME stack will be updated to 3.30 xfce to 4.13.4 which is like the development branch of it uh, which yes, is pretty interesting uh, it's kind of similar to what subuntu is doing in like in preparation for the late the next version of 4.14 and they're also doing updates for various things like uh, firefox chromium and LibreOffice and things like that but what's really interesting is that they do it uh, they're adding some better support or enhancing the support for the app stream metadata giving a much richer like as uh, experience for the software selection in the like software search tools like the gnome software and the plasma discover and things like that for both gnome and plasma so that's pretty cool they're also doing a lot of improvements to laptops if you utilize like optimus as well as their arm ports updates Uh, this is a fairly big update there's not a huge like massive major uh, feature that's being brought into it but it's a lot of uh core fundamental fixes and stuff like that and improvements overall for like performance and things so it's more than just an in- incremental update but it, there's not like any huge flashy items or anything uh, but it's still a great update because i think magia is is a fantastic rpm distro so if you're interested in rpm uh or like if you're not like uh, pretty sure it means red hat package manager still it might not but i'm pretty sure it, no it means it means rpm package manager yeah, it's just it's recursive. Okay, I remember that now. So uh, if you are interested in trying out an RPM distro, uh, Magia is a good option for that. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff in there, and the developers I've talked to are really cool. So are and really nice. So if you're interested in checking it out Magia Seven Beta One, now it is a beta. So keep in mind, it'll probably be a couple months or so before the final release happens. Uh, but again, if you want to test it. Feel free to do so. Uh, Magia 7 Beta 1, there's a link in the show notes. WordPress 5.0 has been released. This is the latest major version from the WordPress project. And WordPress is, if you're not aware, a CMS for managing websites or a content management system, is what that CMS means. Uh, it is the most popular by far uh, system for websites. It's probably about 30 to 35% of the whole internet at this point because it is so vast like massively adopted it is good in many ways also kind of not in other ways uh, but I'm not going to go into particulars because this is not a you know content management system review show or whatever but uh, there is some interesting things that are happening with the latest version like for the most part like it's it, there's a lot of like security imp- improvements and performance improvements and things like that but for the most part those are like, Underlying things and their big focus on this particular release or this push, I guess, is for the new editor, which has been named the Gutenberg editor. They also don't refer to it in the article or the blog post as the Gutenberg editor, but that was the name of it when you installed it. So maybe they changed the name. I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, but the Gutenberg editor is a block based editing system. If you're not aware, this is a description that the WordPress blog gives for the Gutenberg editor. It says the new block-based editor won't change the way any of the content looks to your visitors. What it will do is let you insert any type of multimedia in a snap and rearrange to your heart's content. Each piece of, con- of content will be in its own block, a distinct wrapper for easy maneuvering. If you're more of an HTML and CSS sort of person I, I am, then the blocks won't stand in your way WordPress is here to simplify the process, not the outcome. Anyway, so block a block editor is a is a very common editor in WordPress. There's actually like many of them, multiple. Uh, I, I think of at least six or seven uh, that compete on the level. And now that WordPress is creating their own, it's kind of a negative to all of those plugins, like because there's a lot of um, themes and systems that depend on these editors, and now that Gutenberg has been made by WordPress it essentially makes those irrelevant and obsolete at some point because they have the backing of WordPress and they automatically get the backing of the community because they have the backing of WordPress so most of those editors are probably going to go away I mean most of them maybe not all of them but most of them or they'll you know, somehow make an integration system or compatible with the Gutenberg I'm not sure uh, either way Uh, block editing is nice because it makes it a lot easier to manipulate certain things on the on the system without having to edit any code and things like that so there is that that's a nice feature so it is interesting to see what happens but there is another problem that I really don't like is when you want to edit the source code instead of using the blocks it creates the source it it forces the source code in this really tiny box and it's really annoying to read to read source code in a tiny tiny box um, so i do actually hate that part hopefully they will fix that in the future but right now that part is very annoying uh, so thankfully they do still have support for the classic editor for people who do like source code uh, and they said that the plugin will remain in wordpress for the classic editor uh, until 2021 so and at least until they fix the source code issue in the new gutenberg editor um, I, I will still be able to use that which I like, so there's that. If you'd like to learn more about the latest release from WordPress of WordPress 5.0, you'll find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is some really interesting news. It's a another beta from the Valve team for the Steam Link. So if you're not aware, the Steam Link is a piece of hardware that allows you to uh, put it uh, the, basically as a set-top box or was that would uh, you put it in your living room and you would connect it to your Wi-Fi and on your, via your LAN your main desktop computer would play a game and then stream it to the Steam Link on your TV. So let's say for example you wanted to have like a party and a bunch of people wanted to play it but they can't all sit at your computer so you have the computer running the game and you have people playing it through the Steam Link on your TV. So that is a really cool concept. Unfortunately it didn't really work out as far as the hardware goes for Valve. Uh, they actually started uh, like fire selling the the hardware they had and I actually do have a Steam Link the hardware version and it works quite well um, but they decided it was it's, it's too much effort for them to make the product, they could do more of a software approach and make it easier on themselves, so this announcement is that they are now making a port for Steam Link to be utilized on a Raspberry Pi So if you have a Raspberry Pi 3 or a 3B+, you can actually install Raspbian and then install the Steam Link software. And then once you, you can like launch the Steam Link and install the process. And then you can basically use a Raspberry Pi as a DIY Steam Link. So that's awesome. Like that's a really cool idea because they they decided to get rid of the hardware, which is, you know, when they announced this. Or they didn't really announce it, but they're kind of like, they kind of did. Uh, but anyway, it's pretty cool that they basically, instead of like, just discontinuing something and just letting it go away, they discontinued it and then provided a better solution, uh, for everyone because a lot of people already have a Raspberry Pi three or a three B plus or whatever. And it allows them to just use that instead, which is really cool. So, uh, if you want to get it, you got to get, you get raspy and stretch and you can install the package. I'll have a link in the show notes to the uh, forum post for the steam link, uh, The the steam community, steam community.com website. And that will have the, all of the details of how to do it. You can see it in the screen right here, but if you're uh, an audio listener, uh, you'll have that in the show notes. Uh, But basically what happens is once you run the, the install the dev and you run the steam link command, it will download the full app because that's how steam or valve does things. They create these little tiny packages and then they install this bigger, bigger package from the actual script running inside of the smaller one. And then it will create a desktop application, or a desktop shortcut, I mean. And then it will create like an automatic update system. So that's pretty cool. So uh, It's kind of how they do the, the Steam regular client. Uh, but anyway, if you'd like to find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for the Steam Link Beta for the Raspberry Pi. Up next in the show is NVIDIA has made an announcement that is actually surprising. They have decided to open source a very important piece of software. Uh, a decade ago, NVIDIA acquired the uh, physics engine from their acquisition of AGEA, which actually originated from the Novadex. I think that's how you say it. I don't know. I'm not even sure if you say AGEA either. Um, but they acquired this and they decided to um, implement it inside of their GPU for ex- like to ex- for accelerated physics in games. Uh, but turns out there's a lot more that this engine can do and it's very helpful for scientific computing. And that's pretty much why it's going so- going open source. Uh, they said in a, a quote from their uh, announcement is, We're doing this because physics simulation, long key to immersive games and entertainment, turns out to be more important than we ever thought. Physics simulation de- uh, dovetails with uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, and computer vision, uh, self-driving vehicles, and high-performance computing. So there's a ton of different things that would benefit as far as, like, you know, enterprise level, but also scientific level, uh, that it would be really good for it to be open source, and they decided to do so, which is great. It's very cool that NVIDIA is, you know, they've they've open sourced things in the past, like they open sourced the Drive Studio, which then eventually became the cute 3D Studio, Uh, but overall, it's very rare that they open source something that is actually, like, you know, a core element of their stuff, and it's also rare that they'll open source something that is something they still maintain and still actively develop. So, for example, like the Drive Studio, that became Qt 3D Creator Studio, but Cute makes that, not Nvidia. Uh, this is in the case, In this case, the Phys- PhysX or Physics, uh, this engine is actually something that they still maintain and still utilize. So that's really cool that they're doing that. Uh, so they open source it under the uh, uh, B- BSD license, um, and they've also included inside the license they've included the GPU acceleration code so that part is also open source. So anyway, it's very cool If you'd like to find um, you know find the, find more about this topic you can ha- see a link in the show notes for the blog post from Nvidia as well as a couple articles from like Veronics and places like that that I thought would be interesting if you wanted to learn more. So you'll find a link to those in the show notes. Up next in the show is some very interesting news coming from Microsoft. They have announced that they are going to end the development of the Edge HTML rendering engine and replace it with Blink, and therefore uh, replace their Edge browser with a Chromium-based browser. Um, side note: Edge HTML is a bad name. It's very unfortunate. Should have been Edge TML. That'd be anyway. Um, Microsoft has a quote that is on their blog post from the announcement, it says that uh, Microsoft has meaningfully increased participation in the open source software community, becoming one of the world's largest supporters of open source projects. Today we're announcing that we intend to adopt the Chromium open source project in the development of Microsoft Edge. On the desktop to, well, okay, on the desktop, I ended it weird, to create better web compatibility for our customers and less fragmentation of the web for all web developers." That's a nice way of saying giving Google control over the Internet. Anyway, uh, Microsoft intends to contribute to upstream Chromium and over the next year will switch over to the Edge on Chromium base for their desktop builds. They actually don't use Edge HTML for their mobile uh, versions, with the iOS Edge version, they the browser that uses the WebKit engine, which is the default Safari engine, they just utilize it anyway. And with the Android version, they also use Blink there, so there's really nothing that's going to change for them there. They say that the first developer preview is expected in early 2019. They have no expectation of when the actual release will happen, uh, but sometime in 2019, 2019 is expected. Uh, but for the first, it'll be like the first quarter, For the developer preview, so for developers, will get access to it for like a big beta testing thing. They also said, um, you know, there's, there's, as I said earlier, that it kind of makes an issue of, you know, they say that it's it's helping to eliminate fragmentation, and but essentially that it's true. There's gonna be less less browsers that are competing. That's not necessarily a good thing because it means that all of the internet is dependent on Google. At that point, like if everything was based on Chromium, which a ton of stuff is, you know, that's not really that good. Your competition is important and options are important, right? So Mozilla actually had a a blog post about this particular topic, and they said that by adopting Chromium, Microsoft hands over control of even more of the online life to to Google. They say this may sound melodramatic, but it's not. Because Microsoft's decision gives Google more ability to single-handedly decide what possibilities are available to each one of us on the web. This is a fair point, and I think that this is a uh, you know it's very important that uh, there is competition in uh, basically everywhere. Because you you when when there's not competition, there's really no reason to improve. There's no reason to progress and innovate and things like that. Uh, it's it's always better to have competition. So. Uh, I'm glad that Mozilla is still doing it because that's very important. Uh, what's really interesting is the the next statement in their blog post was, uh, Google is so close to almost complete control of the infrastructure of our online lives that it may not be profitable to continue to fight this. So like as a business sense, they think that it might be a good a, a good business decision by Microsoft to stop fighting Google. However, they said... From a social and civic and individual empowerment perspective, ceding control of fundamental online infrastructure to a single company is terrible. And this is why Mozilla exists. We compete with Google not because it's a good business opportunity. We compete with Google because the health of the internet and online life depends on competition and choice. And I'd have to agree with that. Whether you like Firefox or whether you like Chrome or Chromium uh, or Vivaldi or whatever, uh, that doesn't really necessarily matter. Competition is always a good thing to have. And now there's less competition. I mean, I would have rather Edge have chosen to use the Gecko Quantum browser engine from Mozilla. Uh, but I understand why they chose Chromium because it made it easier for them. Because Chromium uh, uses Blink, Blink is based on WebKit, it's a fork of WebKit. And they already use WebKit and, and Blink on their mobile apps. So it just makes it easier. So I understand that. Would have been nicer if they were to choose Firefox. But it is. Gl- I'm glad to see that they have recognized that Edge and that nobody wants Edge. Nobody wants Internet Explorer. So it is nice to see that they have finally admitted that and uh, are moving on. So uh, that's good. And maybe they're going to help with, you know, doing some more open sourcing uh, of stuff. You know. Who, you know, fingers crossed. I guess. If you want to learn more about this topic, I'll have a link to the uh, in the show notes for this blog post for Microsoft, as well as the blog post for Mozilla, and some other stuff if you're interested in reading it. So uh, check the link in the show notes. Up next in the show is the start of some uh, fairly unfortunate or negative topics. Uh, there's a couple of these. We're going to end the show out with some good topics some some positive, uh, upbeat topics. So there's that. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about the uh, privilege escalation bug that was found in Kubernetes. It's a fairly critical bug, and it allows for, um, well, it allows for privilege escalation from any user at all. It's so I'll go ahead and just to give the, the the basics of it. Uh, it will allow any user to compromise a Kubernetes cluster by way of exploiting any aggregated API server that is deployed for it. Um, so essentially, this is what happened. This is what the blog post or the uh, announcement for the vulnerability is, describes it with. With a specially crafted request, users that are authorized to establish a connection through K- K- Kubernetes API server to a backend server can then send arbitrary requests over the same connection directly to that backend, authenticated with the Kubernetes I- uh, API server's uh, TLS, which is the TLS credentials, which is the security certificate, like uh, secure system, uh, used to establish the backend connection. The problem is, th- is that um, it says any authorized use any user that is that is authorized the problem here is that by default configurations all users authenticated or unauthenticated are allowed to perform discovery API calls and that allows the escalation to happen uh, there's no simple way to detect whether this vulnerability has been used but the because the unauthorized requests are made over an established connection and because that connection is now encrypted is really hard to tell they do not appear in the, API, the Kubernetes API server audit logs either, like the audit logs or the server log. The requests do appear in the kubelet, kubelet, or aggregated API server logs, but those are indistinguishable from correctly authorized and proxied requests via the API server. So it's really it's very hard to tell if it has been utilized and you are affected, you have been in, uh, affected or not. So. The thing is, this flaw is fairly big, and it actually affects all versions from version 1.0 to 1.12, but is only fixed in the supported versions of Kubernetes, which is 1.10.11. Well, basically, it's 1.10, 1.11, and 1.12. Now, if you have any of those series, you need at least 1.10.11, 1.11.5, or 1.12.3 to have the fix. And if you are using Kubernetes in any kind of deployment, you should absolutely 100% update as soon as possible because this is a fairly fairly bad bug. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this particular issue or the CVE, you can find a link in the show notes for a couple blog posts about it as well as the GitHub uh, announcement from the Kubernetes project. Up next in the show is some, well, arguably horrible, infuriating news. And that is, Australia has essentially voted to implement encryption-busting laws. As in, they want to destroy the entire purpose and existence for encryption. Yeah. So there's this, a law that's called the Assistance and Access Bill. Uh, they voted on it already, so I don't really know how many more things. If there's any more votes to happen, or whether it's going through or not. Uh, but they said that the uh, essentially the Labor Party has backed down from completely uh, do it with its opposition because the Labor Party from Australia was opposing the bill in many ways, and now they have essentially completely backed down in every way and abandoned their position. So they are probably going to pass this if they haven't already. They did vote for it and like massively favored for uh, instituting this. I don't know if there's any other steps that they have to go through, but well, let's see what it is. Okay, so this is a a, a, essentially it's a bill that wants them to create, uh, allow the the government to the government of Australia to have a key, a you know a key. Uh, inside of an encryption so they've made this three this this bill has like three big branch systems for it and so first off is the technical assistant notices which is a compulsory notice forcing people for a communication provider essentially that's so obscure that could mean anything that provides any sort of communication at all whether that's an isp or like an app like a chat app or something uh, so if they use any type of inter- inter- if they have interception capability and like uh, create logs of the data, then they are required to give access to the Australian government if it is used in their borders, I guess. So that's bad. The technical capability notices, Which are also compulsory notices for a communication provider to build a new interception capability, so that it can meet the subsequent technical assistance notices. So basically, what it means is that if an application has, or an application or a service or whatever has the ability to create to keep logs of what's happening on their platform, then they're required to provide access to the government. If they don't have access and keep logs, they're required to create. A method of keeping access and logs to give access to the government of Australia. So if you have an app, if you have an application that you use that has that doesn't keep logs and it's encrypted, so like end to end. For example, Signal. They're implying this. This bill is saying that Signal is now required to provide a key and a a key. Which, by the way, I'm saying key with the quotes in the video version because there's really no such thing. You, when you put a key into encryption, you're breaking encryption, and therefore it's worthless. But anyway, the third one is the technical assistance request. Now, this one is interesting because this one is not compulsory. this is a voluntary request um and there's a, a one of the the article talks about how it says there is no criminal or civil penalty for not complying with this particular request, although this is covered by the same secrecy provisions of the previous things so. How does that work? They also say in the in the in this the documents or the bill the, dir- the director general of secret of security and the attorney general can issue notices without judicial oversight. Now, to be more specific, Section three seventeen v says the attorney general cannot issue TCNs, which is the technical capability notices, which is the compulsory thing to force companies to. Uh, add a way to break encryption unless the Attorney Attorney General is satisfied that the requirements imposed by the notice are reasonable and proportionate so essentially saying the Attorney General is not allowed to issue certain these these, uh, requirements unless the person who is the one who is not allowed decides that it's okay so there's no oversight the, the person who issues them is also the person who decides whether it's okay to issue them what okay if a company does not comply with these new ridiculous insane things they can be fined uh, ten million dollars 10 million Australian dollars uh, but essentially this is you know a smaller app would be a smaller app like signal that is like, specifically encrypted for the purpose of encryption um, they're Probably not going to do that, so I don't know what's going to happen there. It's, but basically, this is a bill created by people who don't understand computers, don't understand encryption, don't understand the internet, don't understand technology, and that's why they're creating this horrible thing. I mean, I don't know if they do understand if any of them understands it, but apparently based on the fact that they let this happen, most of them do not understand it. Because if they think that a hacker won't be targeting these backdoors that they're implementing and forcing to be implemented, they're completely naive and possibly idiotic. Because that is a crazy concept, of like, saying like you create a backdoor, and you make it publicly known because of the government forcing it to happen. To think that the hackers don't know, too? Is ridiculous. Of course they know. Anyway, to make it even worse the bill also says that there's a 10 year jail sentence for whistleblowers if the bill if things related to the bill are um, you know provided in public information so if you have if if there's something that the government um, utilizes this bill incorrectly or in a corrupted way and you blow the whistle on it you get jail for it directly into the bill so this does not sound good in any way whatsoever. Like every single piece of this is horrible. And um, the sad thing is, is that a lot of people might go, might think that this, because Australia is doing this, that it's uh, only affects Australia. But essentially it's, what's going to happen is either every app and every service that provides anything for, to Australia is going to leave Australia or there's going to be a huge battle between all these apps and all these companies, like for example, Apple has specifically like battled the U.S. government for this like the same kind of thing, and you can guarantee they'll battle Australia. So, uh, the, the, I, this is going to just be a giant mess, and it is possible that they could hurt it if they were to get away with this. If they were to convince companies to create these these encryption uh, keys or backdoors, then they're hurting the concept of encryption and they're hurting um, every other country that utilizes any of these apps or any of these services so this is absolutely horrible Ugh. but it's hopefully they fail miserably and fall on their face because that would be great. That'd be great. Anybody who is an Australian watching this uh, episode this episode and we'd like to inform you about the things that I got wrong because I probably got something wrong. Uh, I would like to maybe do a follow-up if there's some more information that you could add. uh, Please feel free to leave a comment below or send an email to the channel. Uh, That'd be great, too. Anyway, hopefully this stuff doesn't really become, you know, come to fruition. Uh, But at this moment, it kind of feels like they're trying to do that. Moving on. Less depressing topics. Less depressing. Still bad, but less depressing. Up next in the show... The MB media server has now become proprietary. So, like I said, still negative, but not as depressing. The sad thing about this is that they were not open about it closing the source. Uh, they actually didn't tell anyone until they were asked, to, uh, asked about it. So, they were asked and they said, Well, uh, if you check out our recent announcement, we have, now, we have additions now that are costing us money and we cannot open source that. You could. Instead, because it's you know open source, there's ways to make money with open source. There's tons of projects that prove that. Instead, we we're mod- modularizing and open sourcing as many standalone components as possible as we possibly can. You can possibly do all of them because in all of it, because that's your, it's your decision whether it's open or not. So that's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, they're saying the core is not open, but the modular, like the plugins and the add-ons and stuff, are. So anyway, they didn't make it clear at all how this worked uh if you go to their their, their post that they say the announcement's there it basically just says hardware acceleration will now require mb premiere the premium version but they don't say that that the source code is now closed they just say it needs needs a service it like needs a premium version and you could just that's just they don't apparently don't understand how open source works or how you know stuff works it's weird weird anyway When clarification was requested, the developer who was responding to the previous comments has now decided to refuse to even respond anymore. And also, eventually, decided to close the thread entirely for, you know, because they didn't want to talk about it. But one of the developers of the project did decide to provide his opinion with a disclaimer that says, The following is a private opinion, not an official statement. And then the statement. Then involves him laughing at comments of others, mocking people's opinions, and even goes on to demonstrate that he does not understand what open source is about and how it works, because he basically says that there's no way that open source would work over this, even though of course it would. It's very weird because MB was one of those it was MB was also like constantly talked about being like an open source alternative to Plex, and it is no longer that. So that is unfortunate. And also the free version of MB has been reported to be riddled with nagware. So that's not good. And to uh, on top of that, <laughs> there's also reports to, in the thread that showed MB had been violating the GPL for over a year now. So yeah, they don't care about open source. And even though there's some parts are still open as much as we possibly can, just do something else. Just do something else. Anything else. Well, not anything, but whatever whatever you want (laughs) there are some a couple options uh to use if you're interested there's this one called streama it's a self-hosted streaming media server similar to uh mb but um actually open source like legitimately not in the sense of like weird mm, like frankenstein monster way or you could use plex if you want to um, because if you're going to use MB, the main basically people were talking about the only reason they used MB is because or it, is because it was an open source version of Plex. And even though MB was incredibly buggy and broken in many ways, they liked the support the open source concept of it. So now that MB is proprietary, there's no reason to use MB because if you're okay with proprietary, Plex is like 10 times better. It's remote, it's much more reliable. It's more flexible. It has more features. It's way better. So the really only reason was because of the open source part, and they didn't get that. So we'll see what happens for them in the future. Probably not anything good, but we'll see. Overall, if you are interested in checking out a self-hosted streaming media server, check out Streama. I'll have a link to Streama as well as this uh, thread on GitHub uh, in the show notes below. Up next in the show, there's another hack with uh, Quora. Or Quora? I think it's Quora. And they've re- ex- uh, announced that they had a hack of over 100, uh, about 100 million accounts have been exposed for their details and information about their account. Uh, they're In their email, when they announced to people, it says, we are writing to let you know that we recently discovered that some user data has been compromised as a result of an unauthorized access to our systems by a malicious third party. The data breach includes account information like name, email address, encrypted passwords. They were hashed. Uh, they were they were hashed and salted uh, for each user. So there's it. There should be enough way for the password not necessarily to be automatically. So it, it wasn't plain text, is what I'm saying. But it could be uh, depending on the hash system they used. It could be broken. There could be like a, a collision problem. They they haven't really just explained exactly how they do it. Uh, But anyway, they have also things like data data is imported from uh, other networks that they were linked by the system. Also, any public content and actions that you made, like questions, answers, comments, upvotes, all that stuff is accessible. I mean, it's already kind of accessible, but it's more like it's all consolidated sort of. And then also non-public content as well, uh, such as uh, answer requests that people have requested you to answer a question, uh, the downvotes you make, direct messages you get, there's not a lot of Quora users that use the direct messages though, so that, I guess that's okay. Uh, but I mean, not okay, but I guess it's, you know a silver lining sort of. It's not a very good thing. So if you are using Quora, you need to change your password immediately. If well, and if you aren't, if you're using the same password with Quora anywhere else, you should definitely just get a password manager and get a good solid password. That way, this doesn't have to affect you as badly as it could in the future. Um, but anyway. Very important to change your password. Um, but what's really funny is that in this post, this article that announced it, that was talking about it, um, there was a tweet from an uh, a, a employee at GitHub, which was Aaron Patterson, and his tweet said, there's nothing like a data breach to remind you that you have a Quora account. Because <laughs> a lot of people who have accounts on Cora apparently don't use Quora. So... That's funny. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this, this hack, uh, it is it's something you should, if you do use the site, definitely you know change your password and fix that stuff. But overall, uh, the, you'll find a link uh, to the, the show, in the show notes to the blog post about this, as well as maybe the link to the tweet as well, because I enjoyed that. All that in the show notes. Up next in the show is some really exciting news from uh, the Valve and the CSGO uh, product. CS:GO is Counter-Strike Global Offensive. If you're not aware, it's a game that is a first-person shooter and it's typically like the most competitive first-person shooter basically ever made and it is changing a lot of things. They're they're still doing all the things that are, you know, it's always been, but they're adding extra modes and features that are very very interesting. So for example, the first thing they're doing is they're going free to play or FTP, free to play. So you can play Counter-Strike Global Offensive now for free. And that's crazy. Like, that's... We'll get to that in a second. Anyway, but... uh, They also introduced the Danger Zone, which is the uh, Battle Royale mode, very similar to, like, PUBG and Fortnite, for example. However, it's also incredibly unique. There's a lot of cool things that they built into it. Like, they have a drone system, so you can call in for equipment with a drone, and you can use it to get new equipment, Like, you can buy equipment that way. You can also shoot down a drone to make people waste their money and also not get the equipment they wanted. And you can also uh, follow a drone to find where someone is to attack them, which is pretty interesting. I like that idea. Um, They also added a hostage rescue system so that you can pick up a hostage, carry them to safety, and get extra money during the battle. So that you can buy more equipment and stuff like that. So there's a lot of interesting, cool uh, ideas that they put into it. Is it's it's not like a normal battle royale mode. It's like it's very unique. So that's very cool, and I do plan to try it out. There's also some like um, uh, interesting new things that they're doing with like they had this prime status thing, which was a way for. Uh, to kind of like cut down on smurfing because there's a lot of people who are like really good at the game that would make new accounts and then pretend to be bad and just destroy people Um, so they're trying they they tried to work on that and they did that by creating this prime status system and what's interesting is that they decided to turn it so that anyone who already owned the game is now automatically a prime um, automatically has prime status So even though I didn't play the game that much, I did own it already, so now I have Prime status. Okay. okay. But even if you don't have Prime status, automatically you can still get it by either purchasing Prime status or uh, earning it by getting XP and reaching rank 21 as a player. So this kind of probably is going to hurt their efforts to end the smurfing because in theory a smurf could just buy another account and become another account i i don't know why they're doing that that's kind of weird but the free-to-play thing is pretty cool and it's probably a shot at the like incredibly popular fortnite game which epic games makes uh so because that's like a very similar type of game uh but it's it's also very different it's also a unique style um, but it's interesting, and I think uh, I'm definitely going to try it out this weekend because I look forward to playing this. Because I haven't, uh, I, I've not not very good at first-person shooters in the sense of like the shooting part, but it does sound fun. So I'm going to try that. So anyway, if you'd like to find out more and you'd like to try this out, you have a link to the game on Steam as well as the article from Gaming on Linux in the show notes. Up next in the show is Epic Games, speaking of Epic Games, has announced that they're doing a new game store. The new store is limited to Windows and macOS, though, so that's unfortunate. But the reason I put it in here is because it has implications to um, to Valve and their Steam store, as well as they did say that they will be supporting Android and other open platforms throughout 2019. That's presumably Linux being included, but uh, that's just speculation at the moment, so we don't really know. But uh, More than likely, they're talking about Linux, but we don't know for sure. If they are, that'd be great, because competition is good, but if the competition is limited, eh, whatever. So, Epic Game Store actually aims to give developers a much bigger chunk of the revenue, for the, the valve like then the valve store for example like valve takes like 30 percent or so plus like there's engine percentages and things like that whereas epic is saying that they're going to take only 12 percent of instead of the 30 percent and also if you use the unreal engine on the epic game store they won't charge you for the engine royalty fee which is like five percent so if you use unreal engine four you need to uh, pay a 5% even on Steam, whereas on this, you just pay the 12 to Epic. So this is interesting because Epic is a really big company, and this has a lot of potential to go against Valve, um, but I still think Valve... I mean, I, I massively appreciate Valve because of how much they put into Linux and how like dedicated they are to the Linux platform, so I'm a big fan of Valve, and I and if, if Epic doesn't make a Linux version... I do hope Valve beats them because, you know, I'm more loyal to Linux than I am to whatever game happens to be being made or whatever. So, um, it's really weird because Epic's, uh, Unreal Engine is actually developed on Linux and it works on Linux, but some of their games don't. For example, Fortnite. Fortnite could totally work on Linux, but they have this, uh... I think they use BattleEye. It's an anti-cheat system, and it doesn't work on Linux. So therefore, they just don't care. Um, yeah. So there's that. They're also saying they're going to support extra functionality for developers, like being able to engage with players, content creation, integration with YouTube and Twitch, and other stuff. Like, yeah, okay. So if you support Linux, I will care. I will keep. I will. I'll pay attention to this to make sure. I, you know, in a future episode, if they do actually support Linux, I'll let you know. Uh, right now this has potential to be uh negative towards valve. So the, there is some, you know, it could be negative. It's also very interesting. So if they do support Linux. That'd be fantastic. And I'm like, excited for a com- competition in the space. Um, but another thing is that Valve actually announced recently that they're going to adjust their revenue share. I don't know if it's directly because of this, but it was very similar in time span. Uh, but their revenue share's change is only actually affecting people who have bigger titles, who already have like a, a following and an audience. So that might not be that useful. So, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, if you'd like to learn more about the Epic Games Store, you can find a link to the article from uh, the, uh, the Epic's or Unreal website. As well as a link to the gaming on Linux article, if you'd like to as well. So check it out. The links in the show notes. Up next in the show, and finally, actually, it's another gaming topic. The Humble Bundle or the Humble Team Seventeen Bundle is now out for available, and it's out. For, it's available for you know a little bit over a week now, late uh, week left. I'm sorry, and. There's a lot of cool games that are coming on it, and if you have ever heard of the Escapist, that's a pretty fun like escaping prison game. Like it's a, a pixelated uh, platformer type game. It's pretty fun if you haven't tried it. You should you know check that out. It's a part of the bundle as well as the Panarium, uh, Worms Clan Wars, Interplanetary, uh, Overcooked, and Sheltered. Now all of these, also the Escapist has a bunch of DLC packs included in this too. Um, if you haven't heard of it. Overcooked. uh, Sorry, all of these games are supported natively on Linux, except for Overcooked. However, Overcooked is available as listed as a gold rating on the Steam Play for the Proton database, like ProtonDB.com, does list it as a gold rating, so it might be usable still. What's interesting is that Overlooked, Overcooked Two, is uh, native on Linux. So it's just overcooked one that's in the bundle, and it's not native on Linux. But still, it's an interesting uh, set of games. If you're interested in trying it out, I'll have a link in the show notes, and also to let you know, the link in the show notes is an aff- affiliate link that will give a small percentage of the sale to Tux Digital if you decide to purchase it. So if you do decide to purchase the Humble bundle, I would appreciate using that link. Uh, but if you would like to know more, you can find a link. To the humble Bund- humble team seventeen bundle in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, and many more. You can learn more by going to tuxdigitalcom contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t shirt by going to tuxdigitalcom Linux is Everywhere. And remember the coupon code for 20% off, uh, Linuxmas, L-I-N-U-X-M-A-S. If you'd like to contribute to the show without any cost to you, you can use one of our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, private internet access, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com affiliates. Or if you'd like to submit some news to the show, then visit the subreddit by going to thisweekinlinux.reddit.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And just a reminder, the show is live usually every Saturday, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying